Hey friends, before we dive into the show, I've got something for you. Fellow doctors, entrepreneurs, professionals, busy people in general. Sometimes getting a meal in is difficult and we miss it. It happens, but we need to fuel our body with what it needs to be productive. And let's not forget, eating is important to look after our basic health. I want to tell you about Y Food. It's a balanced, simple and wholesome ready to drink meal. Yes, meal. That means it does keep you full for about five hours, making sure you don't become unproductive or hangry. But also it's packed with 26 vitamins and minerals and a whole 33 grams of protein. They're not joking about when they say a meal. I've dropped their link in the description with a 10% discount code. Check it out. Let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Dr. Sam Desi, who is a very interesting individual. He's a former doctor, worked in the civil service and is now working in Web3. Um, I know a lot of you are probably thinking what on earth is Web3, but we'll get to that. So make sure you listen to the full episode. Sam, massive, massive pleasure having you on the show today. How are you, buddy? Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. I've actually, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts before and I've thoroughly enjoyed them, honestly. No, thank you, man. No, really appreciate that. Yeah. So you're doing cool and wonderful things now, cutting edge maybe, but let's take it all the way back. So young Sam, tell us about the, the journey you had to kind of thinking, do you know what? I want to go to med school. I want to become a doctor and kind of share that journey up into current day. Yeah, sure. I, to be honest, I think my journey is probably very similar to a lot of other uh, people's journeys who are kind of probably from a similar background. So I didn't really want to do medicine. I wanted to do engineering. Um, it wasn't really an option. So I remember being 18 and like sitting down with my parents and being like, look, I, I, I actually really don't like healthcare. And yeah, I just like making stuff. So um it didn't really go down very well and uh you know i think if if there's an opportunity to do medicine in in the eyes of a of a south asian parent um they'll probably push you in that direction so i was uh, i was nudged into that direction however it was an amazing experience you know and i think like it gives you a lot of stuff even though like regardless of whether it's um something that you're super passionate about I think it opens up a lot of doors and, you know, teaches you a lot of uh, interesting things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was 18. I, I went to med school, um, really enjoyed the first three years because there was nothing clinical, really. You know, it was just all science. So you can kind of forget about all the all the clinical stuff. And then it kicked in after, you know, three years. And you because uh, my, my course is like an integrated course. Um, so there was a bit of clinical stuff initially, but not much. And then it really kicked in from, from year four onwards. Um, and then I really lost interest, you know, and, you know, by the time I got to the end of med school, I, I kind of knew that I was on my way out. There was a period where I, I kidded myself into thinking that I wanted to be a surgeon because I did a foundation program where everyone was really competitive and like people I don't know I think once you're in a competitive environment you kind of want to be you kind of just want to be as competitive as everyone else but it's not necessarily that you're interested you know in the field so I ended up just like 
trying to do surgery, trying to get interested in it, you know, going every single day to theatre, thinking that I was enjoying it, but I wasn't really. And, you know, it took me a couple of years to realise that. And the final kind of catalyst to leave was founding my first uh, health tech business, which, which actually failed 18 months later. But I'm so glad I went through that experience because, you know, that was that kind of opened the door to the rest of my life. No, amazing. So after graduating, did you kind of do foundation training or did you kind of go into the, the startup? What was that part of your journey like? Yeah, I went straight into foundation training. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, it was it was really, really competitive. And I was kind of, it was nice to um, like finally be working. And I think whenever you do something new, it kind of takes away uh if there was not like because i wasn't really interested in the you know in the field it kind of because you're doing something novel it tempers that that feeling and you're kind of like you know because you're doing something new you're you're interested just briefly um so yeah i mean i did a year i did my f1 and then i kind of realized that this wasn't for me um even though i'd on the outside it looked like i was like hardcore going into general surgery you know it was like everyone thought that I was like, you know, the kind of like prime candidate for, for general surgery. And I'd done my, the first part of my MRCS at that point. And, you know, everything was looking like that on the outside, but obviously on the inside, I was like, you know, who am I kidding? Yeah. No. On that point. So I talked to a lot of people about sort of career individual person fit right yeah. so clearly working in the healthcare system in that particular role didn't fit with you but you were you were trying your best to fit yourself into that box mm. what what things didn't sit right with you what aspects of the job was like this isn't me this this is not what i like what aspects you know it's really difficult because when you start as a medic as a as an f1 everyone tells you that it's going to get better right so you kind of just you park all the all the stuff that's happening initially, all the bad stuff, all the bad things about the job because you know your registrars are telling you it's going to get better, but they look knackered constantly, right? Your consultants are like telling you it's going to get better, but they're miserable, right? And it got to a point where I was just like looking at my my senior colleagues and thinking I don't actually want to be doing that and feeling like that for the rest of my life you know um and i was also connecting at that point with other people outside of medicine other people in the city um who i guess on paper seem to be doing pretty boring mundane stuff like finance or consulting however it it occurred to me that actually these guys had amazing exit opportunities on the horizon, whereas we as medics have a very fixed path. And that path is very long, you know, and I just didn't want to use up the prime years of my life, you know, on this winding path that I really wasn't committed to, you know. So that's when I really like, you know, started to think, to be honest, at that point, I could have been involved in anything outside of medicine and exited because of that. It just so happened that it was a startup, you know, and I kind of latched onto that with one of my colleagues. Um, and we both ended up kind of pursuing that route. 
Mm. Amazing. Tell us a bit more about, so the best thing is you kind of identified you're not happy in this role. You don't want to continue into it. You kind of looked at things that are on offer outside of medicine. Tell us a bit more about this startup. Um, and I think kind of the lessons you learned. So I know there's every other medic is a co-founder of some sort, right? Yeah. Especially in this day and age. So like, tell us a bit more about the startup, what you learned from it. Um, and then kind of that phase of the journey. Yeah, sure. So I had this uh, bright idea back in 2017 that it would be really cool if you could match doctors to vacant shifts in the hospital. It's been solved a million times, you know. Since um, and actually, we, we already had competitors back then, but we had no idea. We, in fact, we, we kind of knew about them, but we buried our, our heads under the sand about it. Um, I think, like, the first thing was that we... I just remember like the first important moment was when we had emailed the CEO of the trust. Okay. Not thinking that this was like uh, something that, you know, you wouldn't normally do like as a junior doctor, you know, it's like unthinkable to message the, to email the CEO of your, of your NHS trust. But I think like the benefit of being young and, and stupid is being ignorant you know, ignorance is, is, is bad, obviously, but it's also great when you're a startup founder because you don't think anything's impossible, right? So we emailed the CEO thinking he's going to think this is really innovative. And it turns out that, you know, he actually, he didn't answer the email himself. He forwarded it on to one of the other members of the executive board who then got in touch with us um, and asked us to come to his office two weeks later. And then, you know, suddenly we're in the, the executive office of uh, University Hospitals of Birmingham, right? NHS Trust, which is like one of the biggest NHS trusts in the country. And um, it was surreal. And from then on, like he kind of took us under his wing. He saw that we were trying to do something good for the trust. Um, and that was the beginning of the journey. But now, like... Me, if I were to go back in time, I probably wouldn't email, like send that email at all, you know, because I just think it would be, there'd be minimal ROI trying to pursue that mm, yeah. as an avenue, you know. No, mm. definitely. How, so having kind of embarked on the startup journey, how were you feeling in terms of as an individual? Were you more happier? Were you more fulfilled in the work you were doing now compared to when you were a medic? Yeah, I... I'd say you, you are incredibly, you, you are far more fulfilled. Uh, well, certainly I was far more fulfilled. Um, however, you know, that said, after leaving medicine, it's, it's very hard getting adjusted to like, not having a regular salary and trying to, I guess, like move out of that medical mindset. You know, we, we're not really trained to have a growth mindset at med school. Maybe it's changed now, but certainly when I was at med school, which is, I mean, I started over 10 years ago now, which is mental, you know, but um, you're not really trained. You're, what you're trained to do is learn these principles that have been around for decades, in some cases, centuries, right? And then you get into the real world and then you're told to follow these protocols. Otherwise, you know, especially as a young doctor, when you have no you can't really say that you can't base like decisions that go off protocol on experience. So you just stick to protocol. So your whole life and your whole career 
you're you're basically told that you've got to stick to this um you know you've got to stick to the rules and so um i mean i've lost my train of thought now but i mean in terms of what the question was <laughs> but the point is like yeah i mean when yeah when when obviously being liberated from that is is just incredible and so once you have the opportunity to build something from the ground up and you're not constrained and to be honest there was still some constraint because i was trying to build within the nhs um it's uh it's massively fulfilling you know no yeah definitely i i do completely agree with that so once we also started to venture out with our with our first startup and it was again it was something that was within the nhs boundaries you learn that there is a, you know the book the saying the third door to everything you can start bending rules all of a yeah. sudden and right. you can be creative and there's no guidelines anymore um so i do agree we learned a lot from that and then moving it on to what we're doing now it's such i think it's a superpower and as you said being naive is is a superpower because like you said you you forget about the competitors you're willing to just put the graft in put your head under the sand and just keep working at it right um Absolutely. tell us a little bit about what failure teaches you because it's it's very common and we know the statistics that the fir- the startups in the startup space four out of five i think fail um but failure for a first time founder is very very beneficial because on w- what they go on to achieve mm. uh tell us what the first startup taught you and why do you think everyone should actually start up something and just quickly fail and learn everything uh what's your opinion honestly i think like people fail every single day you know of their lives mm. like as a doctor as a junior doctor you fail on a daily basis right yeah it's like most of times they'll have to fail <laughs> but you don't really the thing is like those you don't take those opportunities as I sometimes I mean obviously over time you will take them as learning opportunities but on a day-to-day basis it doesn't feel as visceral because you're not somebody's employed you right and you're the bottom of the rung and you don't feel like really you are invested in this organization that you're working for for the most part there's a massive di- disconnect between you as a lowly junior doctor and you know the big commercial machine which is the NHS trust when you become a founder that gap ceases to exist you are the organization you are the brand you, it is your company and so every failure you have suddenly feels very visceral suddenly it's not like the fault of some distant executive in a boardroom right that you're not you don't have the resources that you need suddenly it's your fault right you don't have the resources you need because you haven't raised capital you haven't um generated any revenue it's on you right so every single time you fail you really feel it but the thing is like you know you've got to realize that actually we've been failing our whole lives and it is literally the only way that 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 we learn um and you've got to detach that that visceral feeling from the core of it which is you know uh no plan is going to survive uh, the first time it hits the market right no it never is um and that is the case for anything any industry that transcends any industry it transcends any career um and so yeah i mean we we had loads of failures through um my first health tech startup it was called swift locum rather unimaginatively maybe that was a failure to the naming i don't know it was pretty bad um and you know i mean one of the biggest things that we that was our, that led to our kind of i don't want to say demise because it sounds like very dark but 
Um, one of the biggest reasons it, it didn't kind of grow into what we expected was that me and my co-founder didn't have a founder's agreement in place to begin with. Um, I knew that he was committed to the army. He was a medical officer. So he had six years basically of a, of a contract that he had to fulfill. He knew that, I knew that we kind of buried our heads under the sand about it, didn't talk about it because the big question was, what are we going to do when we need to go full time on this to, to scale it? Right. So we didn't answer that question. We left it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about anything really about the future and what, you know, what would happen if one of us left. Right. So we got to the point at that point, that crunch point where it was time it was at the end of F2 for me. And I knew I was going to leave and I was going to basically be full-time on the startup without any salary at all. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, to be, to be fair, you, you have the, the benefit of locoming as an SHO when you exit, you know, as a, after F1. Um, so yeah, I always have that as a backup plan, but for all intents and purposes, I was going to go full-time on the, on the startup. And then we had the conversation because at that point I was like, well, if I'm going full-time and you're going to continue with your full-time career in medicine, then, you know, maybe we need to adjust some things. Maybe we need to adjust the equity or, um, uh, you know, just the way that we're working. There's a lot of stuff to adjust, basically. Anyway, we, we disagreed on a lot of stuff then. And, you know, I think that that basically left us on, on bad terms, maybe just for a week or something. We're actually still best friends. But the point is, like, that was the beginning of uh, the end, essentially. You know, that left me kind of feeling really disillusioned about continuing as by myself. I hadn't really, you know, got the kind of terms that I'd wanted. Um, my co-founder was also feeling bittersweet about the situation. And then, like, the little involvement he was going to have, he wasn't really having, you know. And then, you know, suddenly... It all starts with the team, right? When the team yeah. falls apart, then you know yeah. everything else starts to fall apart too. Follow, no. So Absolutely. you finish foundation training. You're kind of winding down the health tech startup. Um, what comes next? So do you, you know, do you think I need to go back into medicine or like that's it? I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out. Tell us about that phase. So health tech is done. You're on to the next chapter of your journey. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because like everyone, everyone thinks that you exit medicine and then it's like when they, when they look at your kind of profile, they kind of think it was like a smooth exit from medicine and that, you know, it's like, it's a clear transition. This person exited medicine, did this, and then that was it, uh, you know, and actually uh, maybe it's just me, but like the truth for me is that actually like after 18 months of doing Swift Locum, um, I didn't really know what my options were. So I went back into locuming, right? And I locumed for a few months and th there came a point when people that I had added to my network during my startup experience, they started reaching out to me asking what was going on with the startup. Um, also, what are you doing now? And, you know, that's when I kind of realized that actually I'd, Create, through that 18 month process, I'd created like this group of people that actually could open lots of interesting doors. Um, and that was the beginning of the realization of how powerful your network is, right? And it's especially powerful as a medic, 
because you don't have that network into that kind of non-medical world from the beginning. Every like every other kind of academic uh, course that you do that you know isn't isn't in medicine essentially you know where it involves uh, something corporate or in uh, or you know something in the city you begin to develop like there's a lot of emphasis put on developing those relationships then but we don't have that at all because the expectation is you just continue with medicine i realized that that was you know there were there were lots of people in my network already that could help and so i got in touch with a lot of them started to nurture those relationships a bit more and then suddenly there started to be you know some opportunities coming forward and the the, the opportunities came forward because those people remembered a conversation right that we had where they they felt like it was a, a great conversation or they felt that it had some kind of impact or i did a project with them or you know or my startup did a project with them you know people remember experiences you know and there was i wasn't paid for any of that stuff at the time but it paid dividends much later down the line you know so that's um that's really how some you know the other opportunities came forward kind of all right on the topic of network sam i agree with you medics aren't conventionally taught the importance of having a network you're kind of on this career trajectory that's kind of been mapped out for many years um compared to other industries what would you recommend or what advice would you give to other medics who are looking for alternative careers or even healthcare on kind of networking? We always say it, you know, yeah. it kind of slides off the tongue super easy, but what does it actually entail? What does it even mean? I mean, it means don't be afraid to reach out to people that think yeah. might might be able to help you. Mm. I'm, I'm actually astounded by the, the high rates of response you can get just from like reaching out to people on LinkedIn. And I would honestly say LinkedIn is probably my favorite networking uh, platform as it is for lots of people, but it's extremely powerful. And actually you'll be very surprised by, uh, you know, the, the, the response that you get from a cold message. In fact, like, I think it was a, a week or so ago, um, somebody who's just, he's got his place at, um, at, at uni, he's like, he's 18. He reached out to me on LinkedIn saying, I, I'm, I really, I'm really interested in Web3. Um, I really want to get to know the industry. I'm not sure about university. I don't, I've got a place at UCL. And I was so impressed that at 18, he had the like, guts to reach out to me, you know, to, to anyone, right? That you know, I jumped on a call with him immediately and offered him work experience at our startup, right? It's simply because like, he'd just shown like, initiative that I'd never seen before. You know, people absolutely love, like, honestly, I do believe this. Like, I, I actually love being reached out to by people because, like, I really want to know what they want to do in life. And I kind of really want to help them because it feels good to help people. Right. Now, of course, don't underestimate that. Definitely. definitely. I, I think one something that I've also learned from this, the startup journey and everything is the is the sort of. The idea of asking for help. Yeah. I think everyone's got a talent, everyone's got a skill, and you'll find that the natural sort of humane nature is if someone's asking for help, you're, you're more likely to offer it, especially if it resonates with what you love. So you love Web3. If I had a Web3 problem, right, yeah. you'd love to support me on that. And um, talking about an 18-year-old reaching out to you, another 18-year-old reached out to us about peer, and um, 
had could code, could design at 18 and yeah. emailed us a whole CV and everything uh, for an internship. And we were like, we're just a startup. We've just started up. So we literally created a whole internship program just for her because of the sort of, uh, what do you call it? The, the courage and yeah. the sort of the ability just to cold email someone and ask yeah. for something. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. You're right. Absolutely. And I agree with that. We should all be sort of reaching out but about networking what is it about not just asking but also offering yeah out yeah, to the course. community as well what would you say about that the thing is, so what we've just talked about is kind of a combination of the two mm. right because mm. when people approach you about so when a like a, anyone approaches me about um web3 so this in this case it was the conversation the opening message was a bit like I'm really interested in Web3. I'd like to learn. Can I do some work experience? So it's not like, it's not just a one-way exchange, you know? And I don't know if this was intentional by this very smart young man, right? But he, uh, you know, he he immediately offered value in that first message. And so I know what you guys are getting at. And I, I, I do agree. I think, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum is if I were to, you know, cold reach out to somebody with a high net worth and ask them for investment straight away. You know, it's like, you know, I think that, that is, um, you know, I mean, clearly it's, uh, you're starting your relationship with somebody just asking for something that is only going to benefit you. Um, and that's, that is not how we develop relationships in real life. So why do we develop relations? Why do we try to re develop relationships like that? um in in the virtual world you know so clearly like when you reach out to somebody yes there's an element of asking there's an element of offering um one of the ways that i've found success with is like generally you're reaching out to somebody because of some kind of content of theirs that you've seen so it's always helpful to to talk about that and say that you've read you know show them that you've you've created value for them by consuming some of their content, you know, and reflecting on it. I think that's a great way to start a conversation. It's how we would in real life. I just don't, you know, I think as long as you follow the principles of like what you would say to somebody in real life over a message, then I think you can't go wrong. No, definitely. Really. Um, so tell us about this, this role in the civil service emerging tech you'd have thought someone that's an nhs doctor in a similar framework goes and does a startup would kind of also explore other startups you know kind of that entrepreneurial graft but you go back into kind of the civil service like a bit more of a corporate role tell us about how that came about and what that entailed sure so again this was an opportunity that came about because of somebody i'd connected with through my first startup journey yeah. um i hadn't spoken to them in a long time um so it was surprising that they called me in the first place about this but they did they called me and they said um this job has come about and um i think this will be well suited to you but i actually knew that i was like one of the handful of doctors this person knew that was like moderately interested in tech uh and so you know i think I probably, I definitely had a, an unfair advantage because of that. So um, I was recommended to 
I was basically referred to the application process, which whenever you're referred to any kind of application process, you're, you essentially skip the first step and you go straight to the second step. Um, and yeah, I did an interview and it, it didn't last very long. And I got the feeling that they just needed someone really quickly. Okay. They... <laughs> Walked out with the job there and then. <laughs> You're like, yeah, got it. So okay. easier than getting to med school. I'll see you tomorrow at nine. <laughs> see, there's definitely a thousand people that could have done that job better than me. <laughs> what did it involve? What did the job involve? It was really fascinating, actually. It's probably yeah. the it's the most fulfilling thing I think I've done um, outside of building my own startup. Um, so, and I think the main, I think the reason is because actually it felt a bit like a startup within a big organization. Um, so essentially it was, a, it was at the beginning of the pandemic and the problem that the Department of Health and Social Care had at that point was that they They'd essentially, they'd asked industry, they'd asked, they basically signaled to industry that we needed some help in developing some new COVID diagnostic tests, essentially. And we needed as much um, capacity as possible, right? And so at the beginning, you know, obviously we ended up with, we, we kind of converged on lateral flows by the end, right? But at the beginning, actually, there were lots of technologies. A lot of people don't know this, but there were, you know, tens of different technologies that we were considering. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of this tech, a kind of, some of it you could put into a bucket. You know, there was a lot of people developing lateral flow tech and you could, you could put that in the lateral flow bucket. And there was a lot of people developing, you know, PCR tech and you could put that in the PCR bucket. But then in the middle, there were people developing, you know, some really sci-fi solutions to detect COVID, like like putting a slide under a, a, an electron microscope and using AI to, you know, to reconstruct the virion, um, or uh, all the way from like that kind of stuff to to like dogs sniffing for COVID, you know, and like all of this stuff kind of went through our wider team. And, you know, we'd look at all the data. The, the point was that they needed somebody to, to come in, understand that middle section of like weird and wonderful tech um, and make sense of the data and then make a kind of recommendation on whether we should take this forward or not. You know? Oh, yeah. that sounds like a very cool That's role. quite a cool That's job because you get exposed cool to a lot role. of like um, different types of tech, a lot of different things. Exactly. Um, and it'd be quite interesting awesome. to see like how effective it is. It was uh, awesome, guys. I mean, it was it was so much fun, especially at the beginning. Obviously, the you know the nation was in turmoil, um, you know, because we were we were doing, we just couldn't keep up with you know the the need. However, the the job itself was, yeah, it was, it was super exciting, really fast moving, and the the cool thing was that like so typically the department of health and social care the government in general is quite slow moving but at that time they had seconded a bunch of very smart people from very high profile jobs you know and so we had like this really eclectic mix of like super high powered executives like you know very very senior partners at some of the biggest consulting firms combined with 
people who've been seconded from industry and like were absolute superstars. So you're surrounded by these like super smart people. And then there was me like, in some case, like actually almost in every case, I was in a more senior position than people who were, you know, way smarter than me, <laughs> which is just yeah. bizarre. You know, it's a really no. bizarre feeling to have. You, you you had the um the Steve Jobs role of the orchestra, right? <laughs> Everyone playing the instrument. That's cool. That's cool. I nah, like that. Definitely. I, I do. T- yeah. I mean, that's like that's my get out of jail for free card. It's almost like yeah. uh, you know, what whenever so investors often ask this, what's your superpower? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I'm always like, uh, I'm really good at making like people way smarter than me work together. You know? Yeah, that's it. That's what you need. <laughs> that's what you need. And, and, and that's the most important thing. It's like Richard Branson, right? Yeah. His his famous yeah. thing is like, um, I think that most founders are like that. It's like he's not the smartest person in the room, but he can make you do something that mm. needs to be done for the job. He's like, very good at finding the right people for the right thing, essentially. On that topic, actually, so we're we're building a team as well, and we're slowly starting to scale. What is it that you look for when you're trying to make? different teams work together have you got any tips on that actually for the founders that are listening in on this as well so when you say different teams you mean the different functions of your business yeah so the different people actually i mean different people high caliber very smart very intelligent yeah. they think for themselves uh, rather than being told what to do yeah, yeah how do you get the what are some tips on getting them to gel well i think like it all starts at the 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 interview process right Hmm. and it's just it's annoying that we have this we have interview processes at all you know um but unfortunately there's not a more efficient way to do it it's very hard firstly um but i think like if you stick to some very core principles in what you look for in people um the rest of the stuff people can learn you know it doesn't really matter. So if you're hiring into like an associate role, for example, and it doesn't matter really if it's an op- like in the operations team or in the product team, you know, or in the sales team, if, if somebody is like authentic, um, I, they're the, so my, my definition of authenticity is somebody who doesn't change as a person when put in different environments right? They remain the same person. And that's, that's super important in a startup environment, because the first time you speak to them, they are like the person who they say they are, right? And right through their kind of tenure at your startup. So that's extremely important. Um, And I think the other thing, and this is like much harder to judge, but it's just like understanding, um, how they have worked with other people over an extended period of time. And the way that I've done this recently is that I run like four week or two week in some cases projects with people that I'm, I want to join the team or I'm interested in joining the team. We'll do something really specific. So really, so um, I just think of an example. So like build a really basic feature for our platform, right? If it's an engineer, Um, and then you just see how they work. They don't need to finish it. Okay. But it's more about like how you interact with them over a period of one or two weeks. Right. That's the only way, because the thing is like anyone can keep it together for uh, a one to two hour interview. Especially medics. Yeah. Especially medics. Medics medics are the biggest showmen ever. Like (laughs) they will finesse you. Like they'll finesse a job role from you. And then like later you realize 
you can't you can't code a single piece of thingy and therefore <laughs> they would, they'll quickly learn it but no nah, it's super important and i do agree with you and i think the way things are now like the traditional way of cvs and getting jobs and like you know people are landing jobs off twitter and linkedin from the work they've done from yeah. the exposure from the stuff they're putting out um like you like during the covid time i remember you were like super vocal about the stuff you're working on yeah like you were you were like the plug on linkedin always connecting yeah, yeah, yeah. um <laughs> so up until now you've had quite a varied career then comes another startup i believe lantern yeah um tell us a bit about that role what you did there how you ended up with that i think the key thing for our listeners is how do people get the job how do they land it and i think you kind of explained that quite well so how does the lantern role come about the thing is like honestly um no one ever gets in through the front door sadly yeah um and that is like you know i can say i can say this now because i know that i'm building my own startup so i'm not <laughs> <laughs> it's inside info yeah. so no one applied through the website yeah. please apply. <laughs> linkedin so, message so let's take it out what i'm saying <laughs> honestly it's almost like if you apply through the website they're like print it out and bin it you know it's like yeah like, well there's like a bin that's literally just sat there um just print it yeah exactly website it's just straight in uh, yeah. honestly i mean it's um the problem is like recruiters are inundated right with with stuff that people want to do and so like when so with obviously they're inundated with cvs and they use like warm introductions as a, a screening process and that is like the most efficient screening process um and obviously it's it's completely imperfect but unfortunately, it's just the way that it is. And therefore, it means that, you know, in order to access a lot of these roles, um, you need to almost have done something with some, have some kind of interaction with somebody in that company that was a positive one. So it kind of harks back to, you know, what we were talking about before when, you know, I started to realize at the end of my first startup journey that people that I'd had a positive interaction with before were suddenly like, they remembered, they remembered me, right? And in the same way, um, with Lantern, I I'd had a positive interaction with one of the founders, right? And they'd remembered me because, you know, we were, obviously, it's in a similar space to what I was doing with my first startup, right? So we, we'd had a, um, we'd had a conversation back then, they'd remembered me, um, and so when I applied to the role, the first thing I did was email her and say, Hey, I'm like really interested in this. Um, I'm exiting the department of health that obviously helped as well, you know, um, <laughs> uh, but like the, the two things combined, like a positive memory of somebody and, you know, like some really relevant, high, like pretty high profile experience, um, you know, those, those two things are, uh, are really difficult to ignore. But the other thing actually was the fact that I was really vocal on LinkedIn at that point in my life. And so that is always uh, a positive, that's almost like a tick in the box for any role you go into, because especially if it's like a director role plus, right? Because what people want to see is that you could be a brand ambassador, right? And so if you have the capability and you already have a bit of a following on any of your socials, especially your professional profile, then 
you know that's that's a really powerful signal no absolutely definitely that so i don't know where to start with your with your career so medical student (laughs) medic swift locum startup then you work um in the government move into another startup lantern and then we are kind of present day so you are crypto itself is probably like a myth to many medics healthcare professionals and then you have this web free right so tell us how you kind of embarked on this phase of the journey um what is web free what are you working on um and then we're going to start nitpicking sam and, and sam you, you got to keep it simple here because <laughs> web3 blows a lot of minds and people just go this is too complex I'm, i don't want my uh want the listeners to just switch off now yeah. <laughs> tell yeah, us okay. a little bit I'm, about this <laughs> i'm gonna try and keep it as simple as possible guys okay yeah i'm not gonna talk about zero knowledge proofs okay that, not, you've lost me already that's episode two you've lost me already I think so. Okay. I mean, this all started because, um, so I've, I've actually been investing in crypto for the last, uh, four years or so. Um, nice. and losing a lot of money basically. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds like my story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been an interesting journey, but anyway, mm. besides the speculative value of cryptocurrencies, I've mm. always believed in the technology. Right. And I think yes. if we start with trying to explain what blockchain is, I'm mm. going to go there, but I try and be really, really kind of uh, clear about this. Um, Absolutely. If I can. Um, then it's kind of easy to understand why it's such a, a, an interesting technology and why I got into this space. Um, when it, once you combine like a passion for, for something with like the, the need to build, then obviously mm. you kind of fall into that space. So that's what happened to yeah. me in January. Um, I was really interested in crypto, really interested in like uh, the, the potential uh, of the technology. And then also mm. was at a point in my life where I wanted to found something again. Mm-hmm. And, mm. and so, you know, combined, I started messing around with NFTs firstly, and I'm going <laughs> yeah, to explain yeah. what they are. Um, but I'm sure people have, regardless of whether you're in the crypto space or not 2021 was like the year of the nft yeah uh, yeah. and also the year of the nft scam um so probably doesn't have the greatest reputation yeah Uh, and so i really wanted to do something useful with a real use case using the technology which was kind of Mm. the void in in 2021 so anyway we ended up founding a company called atlas um and i'm going to explain um what atlas is and actually for the first time, revealing that we're we're actually rebranding. Oh, uh, so, oh, nice. you know, this is the first channel that we're that I'll um, you know reveal. Oh, that thank one. you for sharing. Yeah, huge. Ex- <laughs> bit of exclusivity on our podcast. Yeah. I love that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so blockchain. I mean, if you can imagine uh, a spreadsheet on Excel, right? Um, and essentially this is the, the blockchain is essentially just like it's like a spreadsheet right it has like infinite rows okay and every single time you add a row to that spreadsheet you know you can't take it away okay it's a bit of information you add onto one of the rows and if you want to add some more information you add another row and so on and so forth right 
But the point is that that spreadsheet, it's, you can't delete anything from it. You can only add. So if you want to overwrite something that's happened previously, you put in some more data that says, ignore the last thing or disregard that actually do this thing instead. But there's always going to be a trail of exactly, you know, what's happened on that ledger is, is what it's called a distributed ledger. And that, that spreadsheet essentially for, for, for the pure kind of crypto people, um, or sorry, for the purest blockchains, and I'll get into that in a bit too, if we really want to go there, but, um, that is basically shared with anyone it's public. So you could go on to, so every like transaction that happens on a blockchain called Ethereum, you can go to like uh, a website called Etherscan and you can see every single transaction that's happened basically. Right. And so it's publicly available and that means that it's completely transparent. Okay. Um, the first application of this was in digital money. Right. And it makes a lot of sense because you want, I mean, we as consumers most probably want any transactions with, with money to be transparent, right? Not only that, but we don't, we also don't want there to be a middle person messing around with them. And the cool thing is like traditionally to traditional finance, I mean, you, you know, if you want to pay somebody that's halfway across the world, that transaction has to happen through a bank, a central authority. They'll skim some fees off the top. And also, if they go bankrupt because of an economic crisis, then you could lose all of the money that you have stored with them, right? So with the blockchain, rather than being that, that central authority, actually, all of the rules are dictated by an algorithm okay and any changes to the blockchain have to be agreed with lots of different nodes around the world okay um, so they're just computers basically that have agreed to be nodes and they need to agree on any changes that happen on the blockchain for the change to take place Anyway, we are going to get, we're probably going to get into a space where it's getting quite boring and technical, but <laughs> just to like rein it back in a bit, that was, so digital currency was, um, the first application. I think the second major application was NFTs and NFTs are very different to digital currency. So digital currency is what is known as fungible, which just means that like a, like a pound is a pound, right? Like it doesn't, you know, it's, it's the same, it's worth the same. It doesn't matter. We can exchange pound coins and we still be in the same position. Whereas an NFT is like, it's like a, it's like a unique, it's a completely unique asset. Okay. Um, it's like a piece of art, for example. Right. And if somebody, if a painter was to paint two pieces of art, which were of the same thing, they wouldn't quite be the same. Right. So that's the, the that's the point. They're, they, they're, they're unique kind of digital objects. Um, and so you can't just exchange them. And that's why it's that they are known as non fungible tokens. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like that that deserves to be cut down on the final, <laughs> on the final yeah. guys. 
explained a lot explained a lot there so so tell us now where the use of blockchain fits in with atlas what what's happening there yeah sure so we we actually started originally um trying to fundraise for non-profits and charities mm-hmm. we thought it'd be really cool if we could help charities develop nfts mm-hmm. which are like you know like i explained like a bit like like unique digital tokens and the idea being that people could buy them the charities would get most of the revenue and mm. if you held one of these nfts then we could give you access to some of the projects that the charities are involved with because you're mm. a philanthropic altruistic person right mm. so that was the original kind of thesis of atlas um but it, it became quite like quickly apparent that actually unfortunately there's not a there's not a, a very strong drive for philanthropic activity in this space yeah right um actually yeah. there's a lot of people out there who are just driven by kind of monetary gains and so yeah. you know like if they if there are if there is somebody who wants to donate to a non-profit or charity then most likely they'll just donate with regular money right they won't yeah. go through the rigmarole of setting up a digital wallet yeah. buying some cryptocurrency you know making sure it's the right cryptocurrency and then sending it to yeah. us you know the only people yeah. that are doing that are like the kind of people that are involved in like you know that they're very very like deeply involved in crypto and probably to make as much money as possible is that yeah, yeah. So there was a mismatch between the technology we were building and uh the, the today's audience basically mm. yeah of course mm. um and so you know i mean we 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 kind of we did run one uh philanthropic project which was very successful to be fair it raised a hundred thousand dollars in oh wow um in primary nft sales which mm, is awesome um but and then when we reflected on it we kind of you know we we, we had this realization about the the mismatch right between the market mm. and the audience we also had this realization that actually it was really cool that um we had managed to like mobilize this global audience of people who are mm. really interested in investing in this nft campaign and they were telling all their friends about it they were promoting it um and we just love the fact that you know we we could empower this 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 global army basically to promote what was essentially a brand the brand of the nonprofit mm. And so it's actually that concept that we decided to to take forward into what we're doing now, right? Mm. Um, and it, it's it's it feels almost weird talking about it because we we were just talking about medicine and it's kind of yeah. easy for me to forget how different this is to medicine. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's completely different. It's like it's not healthcare related at all. Mm. Um, it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's the other end of the spectrum, and I think like. To be honest, so, so now, uh, just, to, just to quickly kind of wrap up that thread, um, we're actually, now we're tokenizing social commerce, which is probably gibberish to most people. Hmm. Um, but what that means is that um, we're taking this like, so you know when you're, the, I, probably the best way to describe it is, you know when you're kind of walking around, walking anywhere and somebody comes to you and they say, I really like your t-shirt or I like your glasses. Hmm. Yeah. And 
you uh, tell them you're quite excited about it because somebody's like complimented you and you tell them where they're from and you say, yeah. don't get the size that's, um, don't get a size smaller because these are really big, you know, mm. and you say they were only 40 quid or something like that. Mm. And basically you make a sale, right? Yeah. But you're unrewarded for that. That instance happens all the time, right? True. You're wearing a watch and you don't even have to say anything. Somebody like sees your watch and they're like, wow, that's a cool watch. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to go buy it. it. Right. And then they'll go off and buy it, you know, but okay. you're the reason why that that brand is now, you know, generating more revenue. Mm, so yeah. the cool thing about blockchain is that those instances, you know, if they record, if they are recorded on the blockchain, then we can track them, right? Mm. We can track them. We couldn't track them before. There was no way to do that. And so what brands are doing before was working with influencers um, because it's easy to know, like, you know, the sales are coming through Instagram or YouTube. There's an influencer with 100,000 followers. It kind of predicts, like, you know, what's right to pay them, what's right to mm -hmm. reward them. But you, they'd shy away from, like, you know, independent brand ambassadors. Yeah, we can do this now. So this is what we're doing. We're we're developing a platform that rewards independent brand ambassadorship. Um, mm. And I know this is like, you know, so just to go back to the whole, you know, the, the how different this is from healthcare. Yeah. Um, this has all been like a part of this like weird winding journey where I've kind of just been slowly coming to the realization that yeah, um, it's okay to be my 18 year old self, you know, Mm. I've kind of gone full circle to that to that yeah. <laughs> that moment in time when I was like sat there yeah. with my parents being like I didn't want to do healthcare yeah and I've yeah. sat there like I've tried it I still don't want to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> now you, you know objectively looking at it though as sitting here listening to you it all connects though you saying you want to be an engineer having gone through med school probably developed amazing communication skill building a rapport building a network, knowing how to nurture relationships, yeah. um, founding something, moving on, taking on the learnings from failure. It all connects though right now where you stand because you're doing all of those things yeah. in one place. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, really incredible to actually see. So love it. No, love it. I think it's that. good. Um, so the, the question I want to say, and I know a lot of people are thinking is, do you feel... So, so I think medics, they like to kind of venture to things they're familiar with. They've got yeah. some sort of experience with, whereas Web3 crypto is like out of their depth. They don't know anything about it. What advice would you give to people? They may have a passion in something and they may feel out of depth, but is it worth pursuing it? Because there is sometimes the, the notion of stay close to your interest, stay close to where your experience lies. But someone might just have a passion in something totally outside of medicine. Yeah. What, what would you say to those individuals? I think people are beginning to realize now that... Um... Uh, the medicine is once you're in it, you don't have to, you know, I know there's a pull to like this, this, this weird kind of gravity that it has that it pulls you back every time. Like you, because you've invested so much time into this and it will be absolutely awful if you left. It's just, the, the thing is like life is so short and if you don't, pursue this like this interest you have now you're going to fall into a trap you know and that trap is going to end up uh you know leading to um you know the miserable consultant state 
that we see too often, you know, these days and is the reason why I left in the first place. Um, it's really hard. Like it's way easier said than done. It's way easier for me to sit here and say this now, like after, you know, all of my experiences, some of those experiences were awful, you know, like exiting medicine was far from straightforward. It was, it was, um, really rocky and it put strain on all of my relationships. Um, I didn't have a salary for a few months. And so, you know, all of that stuff that you fear, you know, some of it, it, it it's true. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. Like you, you can't know, hide away from it to 100%. be fair. No, you know? but I think, but hearing your story and your passion and it kind of feels like it's worth at the end as in yeah. the, the feeling of fulfillment and contentment and to be able to do something that you genuinely have a passion for that has a good use case that has a good impact. It's worth it despite how you kind of get to that point. It's so um, worth it. It's so, so worth it. And actually, there are way easier paths than the one that I took. So whenever <laughs> like anyone asks, like, how do yeah. I exit medicine? I, have n- like, I do not recommend doing <laughs> a startup and then exiting medicine without having any salary, basically. Um, yeah, yeah. The best, like, way, the best way for the crazy yeah it's, it's crazy it is crazy and honestly i got really lucky and there was a point actually i mean i got lucky eventually mm. but there was a point like 18 months after you know when when that first startup kind of folded mm. um where i started locoming again and i just thought this is really easy like i could just fall back into this and yeah that's it you know it's like it's comfortable it's easy and I came so close to just doing GP training and then being unhappy for mm. the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. We, we, I completely get that. And I think what's refreshing to see is, obviously we love medicine, there's, there's affinity of healthcare. It's, I feel the new cohort or the new generation medics are more receptive to exploring options outside of medicine yeah. within healthcare. Um, the one on Instagram, social media. And I think that's helped a lot as in people sharing their experiences. And these medics are like, a lot of them aren't even going to do F1. They're, they're already yeah. securing jobs to go into consultancy, McKinsey, Bain or whatever it may be, yeah. startups. Um, so it's quite nice to see at the same time, obviously it is worrying to a certain degree, yeah. but um, no, definitely. And I think you are kind of one of the early individuals that are saw on LinkedIn that were carving your own path. You probably don't have any people that you could follow their footsteps. Yeah. Um, so I think, it's great what you're doing on LinkedIn, kind of sharing it, coming onto this podcast, sharing your story, showing it is possible. I think the fear is you leave medicine, yeah. you can't get back into again, and then you're stuck. No salary, all that time and effort, money wasted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it is really possible, and I think nowadays it's um, now that we have case studies to rely on, you know, and mm-hmm. like. I just want to. I think this is really important, right? Because a lot of people ask me, like, if you could go back, like, what would you do now? And I'd honestly say like, there would be one of two things that I'd do. And that is either go straight into consulting uh, mm. at a well-regarded firm or do an MBA, you know, mm-hmm. because I would have compressed like, you know, uh, many years of kind of anguish <laughs> and like yeah. tortuous uh, career path into, you know, what, one of those two experiences. And, you know, that would have been done in one or two years. And Easy, yeah. like, obviously the, after that the exit opportunities are are huge mm. there's just like you just need one kind of transfer transformational experience and for me yeah. it was it was the department of health experience 
that was like mm. an accelerated it almost felt like so when i started i honestly couldn't do the job right i was yeah. like massively underqualified massively inexperienced and the only the, the problem was that like the, for that team the buck stopped with me you know oh, and i had no. no idea how i'd landed this and then and i was just like you know had to grow into the role and mm. that will happen to somebody if they're thrown into consulting at McKinsey, mm. BCG, Bain, or if they're thrown into a, an intense MBA program, right, mm, at LBS yeah. or or Harvard or, you know, any of the, you know, the, the school really matters, actually. Mm. Um, but you just need that. You need that one experience where you're put into a situation that you literally cannot... You, you find it difficult to function initially doing a startup does that to you as well it's just that you have that risk of like you know in 12 months time no one's going to care that you started swift locum right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. no one cares whereas 12 (laughs) months into your business analyst or associate role at mckinsey people care um and obviously i took the 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 former option and you know, manage to make something of it, but it could have gone either way, you know, no, so really to manage your risk and to have a salary at the same time and <laughs> to have good exit mm. opportunities. I'd honestly go for uh, consulting or MBA. No, definitely. Amazing. I think um, this was definitely a fruitful conversation. Mm. I know there's a lot of medics right now just kind of stuck feeling, you know, lack of fulfillment, feeling the sense of I didn't sign up for this, the disparity between what you think being a doctor is compared to when you're on the kind of shop floor per se. Um, And they're talented individuals with an amazing skill set. So our job now, I think, is kind of to share stories like yourselves to them and show it is possible. Um, And there are avenues. Like you said, case studies. I think we need more case studies um, out there. Um, But Sam, massive thank you. We've spoken for more than an hour and I'm conscious, you know, your time is valuable. Especially in the crypto space, the man. Crypto space, Some of these man. pumps, you don't want to miss it. Yeah, the market can it. change now. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> I bet Ethereum's probably dropped by like 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't know, man. You guys ran over I... 10 minutes. I know, I know. I, know. <laughs> I had the, the merge is coming up, so we'll see how that pans out as well. Um, but no, thank you, um, generally, Sam. It's been a massive, massive pleasure. Um, and a massive thank you to our listeners.